Hello, welcome to Head On History. My name is Ali A. Alomi and I am your host. Uh, I'm going to start off this podcast with a bit of exciting news. Uh, this podcast is sponsored by Audible.com. So if you'd like to support the podcast, we'll be sharing a link at the end to download audiobooks because being smart is fun. Uh, and going forward, starting season three, we'll mention it a bit more. We're also going to introduce a couple new segments in season three, but this is going to be our last episode for season two, which will hopefully bring all the discussion of the history and intellectual developments of Islam to a conclusion. Next season, we are going to talk about the other Islams or global Islam, focusing on Southeast Asia looking at Africa, Al-Andalus, um, and moving into the kind of contemporary moment by looking at migration, assimilation, and kind of the broader questions in Islamic history, as I do in, in my class. Um, but for today, I want to focus and wrap up on the intellectual history of Islam. We started with the ideas of gender this season, and we moved into the sort of theological formations of orthodoxy. Today, what I want to talk about, however, is how the orthodoxies that we've been talking about in the past couple weeks, the formation of the Ahli al-Hadith, the debates with the Mutazili, the uh, movement of the, or the uh, formation of the imamate in Shiism, um, as well as the practices of Sufism, how those sort of orthodoxies began a long process of becoming mainstream. Remember, at this time, most of this are, are elite debates. The Mutazili and the Ahli al-Hadith are a bunch of scholars debating amongst one and one another. Now, during the minya of al-Ma'mun in the 9th and 10th century, the ulama, uh, that is, experts in the emerging Sharia law, began to exert authority as guardians of Islam. Right, the minhad had given them a sort of moral authority that they didn't quite have before. They certainly were respected as, as scholars and experts of law, experts that had memorized the Quran and hadiths and whatnot. Um, but as a result of the minhad, in which the khalif really begins a process of an inquisition against scholars, they stood up as a moral authority against his overreach. Well, the khalif tried to kind of influence uh, theological under. Underpinnings. The ulama, who sprang from the kind of debates that was being had in the court between the Ahli al-Hadith and the, and the Mutazili, they were a direct response to the overreach of the Khalif. They were a direct response to the Khalif's authority gone too far. In many ways, if the institution of the caliphate had turned corrupt and oppressive, or more importantly, no longer represented the sort of egalitarian spirit of Islam, then the ulama were the kind of medicine if you will, that were aimed at addressing that. Uh, in particular, the various schools of Islamic thought, Shafi, Malaki, Hanafi, Hanbali, all captured this kind of shift. The Hanafi school, which was the earliest of the school we talked about both last season and this season, Abu Hanifa begins to write down the Akhbar, the news of Muhammad, that is the various stories and reports that he receives about Muhammad, down, and he systematized this into law. He does this very early on, even before the, the Abbasids, under the reign of the Umayyads, he starts to write down the, the, the kind of system. What happens if the caliphate is no longer doing what it's supposed to do? Well, then here is the guidebook for how you can still live Islamically. Even if you cannot create a just society, you can 
focus on the local community you can't in other words if you can't win at the national election you can win at the local election and that's kind of what abu hanifa does he creates this system that says first and foremost you look to the quran and if the quran doesn't have the answer then you look to the akbar or the hadiths see if they have the answer if the hadiths don't have the answer then you look at uh, qiyas qiyas is analogy you find a way of creating analogy to the principle of the Quran, I mean, the, the the Quran doesn't talk about things like cell phones and 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 modern technology, but scholars would use nowadays something called kiosk, that technique of finding an analogy in order to uh, understand what would be the right action to take, or look at something like ijma, that is the consensus of people, and ijtihad, that is the in personal interpretation, the critical reasoning of, of the scholar. And that became the kind of core of what's called fiqh. Fiqh is Islamic jurisprudence that produces uh, or attempts to create sharia. Sharia, as I mentioned, is not actually Islamic law, but really Islamic guidance. How, to, how the principles of Islam can guide your daily life. This is Abu Hanifa's uh, contributions and under the under the Abbasid is when Abu Hanifa's uh, teachings, his work on the Sharia, uh, becomes popularized. The ulama that emerge out of the Abbasid period emerge as experts of one of these schools of Islamic law or Islamic jurisprudence. They are either Hanafis or Malakis or Shafis or Hanbalis. Now, if Hanafi was the, or the original one, the kind of first to really systematize it, after him comes. Malik, um, Malik ibn Nas, Anas, and he creates the Maliki school of thought, in which he kind of follows what Abu Hanifa did. He also gathers the Akbar or the, the Hadith of Muhammad, um, but he is focused more on what are the practices in Medina. So what are the local customs, if you will, at Medina? And what are the Medinans doing? Because what the Medinans are doing, theirs is the right guidance. This is referred to as Amal. Um, and then they all, he also makes uh, account for what's known as Urf, or the customs of the, of the broader community. If, if you, Amal, that is the customs of Medina, doesn't answer a particular question, then you can turn to the customs of your community. Um, and then, of course, there's also istisla, which is the uh, preference of the jurist. In this way, Islam was these Islamic schools were very flexible. That is to say, they came, out, they might come into a region like, say, Bukhara, which is in Central Asia. Um, and they would recognize that there were certain customs that people were already practicing. And as long as those customs didn't violate a Quranic principle, like it wasn't unjust or cruel or oppressive or something like that, then it could be continued under the principle of Urf. This is very contrary to the kind of way people think of how Islam spread, which is a very kind of strict and enforced religion in which it kind of top down. When in reality, it's a much more dialogical process that involves looking at the principles of the Quran, looking at the principles that are gathered from the Hadith and seeing in which ways they dynamically fit with a community wherever that community uh, is, whether it's in uh, somewhere like Damascus or as far flung as, say, New Delhi. This is what made uh, in many ways, the this brand of Islam, this Islam that is rooted in scholarship, so popular. 
Now, after uh, Malik ibn Nas, one of his students also formed a school of thought, and that is known as the Shafi. Al Shafi came up with the school of thought. Uh, Al Shafi moves away from the Maliki school of thought. He also, like the other ones, believes in the Quran, the Hadith, the Ijma, that is the consensus of the community, and Ijtihad, but he moves away from the idea of Amal. He says there's nothing particularly unique or special about the Medinan customs that need to be extrapolated to the broader Muslim community. So he doesn't find that particularly important, though he does occasionally see urf, that is local customs, as a part of, of one of the core principles from which guidance can be drawn from. And then finally, he does this in the 9th century, roughly. Then finally, we have Ahmad ibn Hanbal, who creates the Hanbali school of thought. Now, I talked about ibn ah- Ahmad ibn Hanbal in the last episode, uh, in the last couple episodes, actually, as one of the figures of the Ahli al-Hadith. Like these other uh, leaders of jurisprudence, he started by interrogating, investigating, collecting, and coalescing the Hadiths. That is the stories of Muhammad. But where the other schools in allowed things like uh, ijtihad, that is the personal interpretation of a scholar, uh, allowed things like uh, is, uh, istisalah, which is the um, uh, good of the community, right, that the Malaki school does. Istisalah is this idea that, well, what is good for the community? Is this, is this a greater good um, or is this not a greater good? Um, the Hanbali school kind of says, no, no, those aren't principles of law. Just stick to uh, the Quran and the Hadith and Ijma, that is the consensus of the first generation of scholars. And that's it. So it's a much more conservative, less dynamic school of, of Islamic law and it becomes a, um, a kind of a result of a, really a product of that minya moment that that inquisition moment that says you know this has gone too far too much authority has been given to individuals and so we need to return to the sources the kind of textual sources and put our trust in them but these four schools of Hanafi thought there are a few others of course there's also the uh, Shia schools of thought in particular the Jaff uh, the Jaff for example, they all become popularized in that moment of the fragmenting of the caliphate, right? They were they form and they become super popular because they're accessible. They're about how does the ordinary Muslim live? And they're not focused on these kind of high-minded theological debates. That's not to say they're not interested in theology. They certainly are. But then they ask that follow-up question, well, what about the ordinary person? Why does this matter? So it's not just intellectualism for the sake of intellectualism. There's a very practical component here. How does the ordinary Muslim, how is the ordinary Muslim impacted by these ideas? And so the Hanafi, the Maliki, the Shafi, and the Hanbali school really grow. Um, and we see that to this day, the, these, main, these are the main schools that become. Now remember, there's other schools of jurisprudence, but these four, um, along with the Shia, become the schools of thought that are popularized because of that historical moment and are still practiced to this very day. I'll give you a kind of fascinating example of this. Ayatollah Khomeini, the Ayatollah that was the religious leader that emerged after the Islamic Revolution in 1979 um, and created the Islamic Republic, 
one of the main architects of the modern Islamic Republic, and when he died, he passed on to Khomeini. Khomeini actually used these principles, these ancient principles, um, in the Shia school of law. They also have istisla. Istisla is for the public good, meaning that there is a, the law, uh, the guidance is given because that that thing is for the good of all in order to deal with transgenderism. He met with uh, an individual, a transgender woman who explained uh, her difficulties to him. And he turned to the Quran, couldn't find the answer there, turned to the Hadith, didn't find the answer there, and so turned to istisla, that is the principle of Sharia, fiqh. And he said, you know what? Transgenderism can be accepted, that we will allow and pay for uh, sex reassignment surgery for transgender individuals so that they can live their life as the gender that they feel that they are, their true gender. So he, taking this kind of modern situation of transgender, and transgenders have always existed, but the, the issue of, of sex reassignment surgery is a very contemporary one, right? He takes this and he goes, okay, well, how, well, how does Islam confront this? And he uses those ancient principles developed from the 8th to about the 10th century. He uses the principle of istisla to come to an answer. So that's why this kind of history that I'm talking about still matters. It's still very pertinent to this day. So while the schools were forming, Sufi practicers like uh, zikr, that is the remembrance of God, rep rep repeatedly saying one of the asma al-husna, the beautiful names of God, song and similar devotional practices formed a way of internalizing those principles. So religious scholars created a system by which they used the Quran, the Hadith, legal reasoning, etc., in order to provide guidance on how to pray, how to fast. In other words, guidance for the daily life of Muslims. Sufis developed the practices that would internalize the principles behind those practices. So why do you pray? Why do you fast? Why do you do ablutions? It's in order to uh, cultivate God consciousness, that is, con being conscious of God at all times. What's known as ihsan, or beauty, this idea of that you may not see God, but God sees you. So how to cultivate that principle? And this comes from the Sufis, right? So they formed this way of internalizing the way of Muhammad and the principles of the Quran. These practices were then organized into Sufi orders known as the Tariqah. Each Tariqah revolved around a sheikh or a leader who traced the transmission of those practices, how those practices were passed down back to Muhammad either through Ali or Abu Bakr. Focusing on the oneness of God, Sufism emphasized the oneness of community. Again, this is a response to the kind of divisions of the Mina going, you know what? This has gone too far. We need to be one community, what is known as Jama'at. And it so it moved away from those debates and instead focused on internalizing the spirit of Islam. They spread far and wide, and thanks mostly to kind of merchants and trade uh, routes throughout the region, they spread Islam at the popular level. Now, why does this matter? Why should any of us care? Well, this spread Islam into modern-day Afghanistan and into South Asia. Sufism is the prime reason Islam became as popular as it did. Now, the Sufis were experts in law. They were following one of the madhabs. They would be either Hanafi, Maliki, Shafi, or Hanbali. But they were also experts in 
these various devotional practices. Combining the two of them made for an accessible, dynamic, and popular Islam. You turn to a tariqah, an order, uh, often based in what's known as a khanka or a monastery, a kind of Sufi school or monastery. You would go there and you would ask, okay, well, I want to divorce my husband. How do I divorce my husband? That Sufi would be an expert in the law. He would explain to you, either through the Hanafi school or the Maliki school or the Shafi school or the Hanbali school, how to divorce. You would ask, well, how do I pray the proper way? He would tell you how to pray. But while he's giving you ritual advice, he can also tell you the meaning behind those rituals. He'll tell you to also practice zikr. So he brought all of those practices together. In other words, highbrow debates were great, but what did those debates mean practically for the average person? This is what spread the various Sunni madhabs throughout the region. Now, to really understand how this became systemized, you have to look at the history of what happens to the caliphate. Okay, The caliphs begin a tradition of importing Turkish slave soldiers in order to bolster their position. They need a reliable military institution that they can took to. And Turkish slave soldiers, known as the Ghilman, later known as the Mamluk, were super important for them. They even moved their administrative capital out of Baghdad. Baghdad became the philosophical cultural capital, and Samara became the administrative capital, where literally the Khalif would have a military directly under his control, a military that he would train that would be personally loyal to him. But the migration of Turkic populations precipitated the coming of the Seljuks. The Seljuks were a Turkic tribe group that moved in from the Asian steppes and established political authority over the region of the caliphate. So while the caliph retained the kind of uh, the symbolic power, if you will, the Seljuks became the political authority. They became what are known as sultans. It's where the concept of the sultan comes from. This, this kind of mirrors a tradition that had been happening in the Abbasid Caliphate for a while. The caliph had lost a lot of political power, and so he had continually handed military reigns over to local rulers known as emirs. Emirs kind of mean prince. And then the head of the emirs would be known as Amir al-Omara, the kind of chief of emirs or prince of princes, if you will. Um, and so those would be military commanders while the caliph maintained uh, symbolic authority. Under the Seljuks, that tradition, that kind of uh, system, was formalized into an empire. The military commander would be the sultan, and he would rule on behalf of the caliph, who would be the symbolic figurehead. So while the caliph remained in Baghdad or Samarra or whatnot, the real power were the Seljuk sultans. And under the Seljuk sultans was the most famous vizier and Persian counselor, Nizam al-Mulk. Nizam al-Mulk sponsored a series of schools known as the Nizamiyya. These schools formed a massive network of education and communication that became the power that stabilized the Islamic lands while the caliphate itself was kind of fractured. These schools would paid by, sponsored by the Seljuks, and they popped up everywhere. As far away as Damascus, in the heartlands of, of the Seljuk dynasty, which was in, in modern-day Afghanistan, and Uzbekistan, and Bukhara, and Herat, all these different areas would have these schools. And these schools would be training grounds for the ulama. Those individuals 
that had already exerted themselves as a pol as a moral authority and a check against the overreach of the khalif were then formally trained in the nizamamiya and became part of a network of scholars so that if the politics may have been in disarray the scholars and their various schools were symbols of continuity and stability in fact, when the Mongols sweep in in the 13th century, in 1258, they completely wipe out Baghdad. It is the fact that Islam survives and that the Mongols were unable to wipe out all of Islam is because of this network of scholars. The Nizamamiya, these schools that remained in contact with one another, that became centers of local learning, that spread the various schools of thought, Hanafi, Maliki, Shafi'i, um, uh, Hanbali, and Sufism, throughout the region at the popular level. You had a single Nizamamiya, say, in Herat, everyone in that region would flock to it. And so it became these kind of these kind of linchpins or pinpoints that kept the Islamic world together, even as the Mongols sweeped in. And so it was this unintended consequence of the rise of scholarship is that shift towards scholarship saves Islam. If Islam had remained as rooted in Khalifal politics, that is, rooted in the heartland of Baghdad, then it would have been destroyed with the destruction of Baghdad itself and the killing of the Khalif. But though the Khalif was gone and Baghdad was destroyed, Islam survived because of this long process, this shift that started in the 9th century and continued on until the 13th century of Islam being popularized by scholars. Two scholars in particular really epitomize the reconciliation of orthodoxy under the ulama. First is Fatima al-Samarqandi. Uh, she was an 11th century scholar of the Hanafi school. She was a powerful force in Hanafi jurisprudence, and her fatwas and rulings were highly popular, and she was sought after by everybody. Her husband, uh, who was also a scholar in his own right, would actually rely heavily on her counsel. Whenever he had a situation that he couldn't resolve, he would turn to her. She is actually credited with being one of the many stellar scholars out of this moment that popularized the Hanafi school throughout Central Asia and South Asia. Today, the Hanafi school is one of the most popular madhabs, going stretching all the way from Southeast Asia and India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, this entire region, all the way even into Iraq and, and, and Lebanon and Syria. And it's because of her. In fact, Imad al-Din Zengi, the man who was the mentor of Salah al-Din, Salah al-Din was the famous uh, Kurdish general and sultan of the Ayyubid dynasty that conquers, reconquers, and liberates sort of Jerusalem from crusader hands in 1187 after the Battle of Hattin. His mentor was a guy named Imad al-Din Zengi. Imad al-Din Zengi was trained by... Fatima al-Samarkandi. She was his counselor. She gave him advice. The kind of ideology of Fatima al-Samarkandi was passed on to Imad al-Din Zengi, who passed it on to uh, Salahuddin. So we can see how important she is uh, as, as a scholar. The next is a man named Muhammad al-Ghazali, who's actually studied in the court of Nizam al-Malik. But before we go any further, we're going to take a quick break because I've talked for so long, and we're going to do a quick rapid fire round. We've done so few of these this year, so it's, uh, this uh, season, so I'm going to do one, one, one last one for the season for good measure before we move on. 
Okay, rapid fire round. There are a lot of Muslims in, or a lot of Muhammads in Islamic history. How do you keep it all straight? Are you going to talk about anything other than Islam? And if the caliphate was destroyed, what happens to the caliph? Do Muslims have a caliph? Um, so the first question, there are a lot of Muhammads in Islamic history. How do I keep it all straight? Practice, my friend, practice. It also helps that uh, a lot of figures are referred to by their last name. So Muhammad al-Ghazali is more often than not referred to as Ghazali, whereas Muhammad the Prophet um, is referred to as just Muhammad. Um, so that helps a little bit. But I remember when I was first starting out, I think I was the first book, actually first textbook, I read because I'd read, read, written or read books about Islam before, but the first kind of academic text on Islam that I read was Hugh Kennedy's book on the Caliphate. I think the uh, rightfully guided caliphs, and I remember reading it and going, "Oh my God, there's no way I can keep all these names straight." Even though I grew up speaking Farsi and I had learned Arabic. Um, and even, you know, my family is Muslim and all that, right? These, many of these stories were familiar. But from an academic perspective, this was the first time I had been confronted with all of those names. It also is part of the kind of training you as you grow up. When you grow up, you grow up learning a particular type of history that is predominantly Eurocentric, right? You learn about the million different Georges and the 15 different Napoleons and at least 30 Louis, right? So you, you hear all these different names and you just it becomes normative for you it's easy you don't forget it and also are names that are still kind of in use today and you don't think about the other the rest of the world so it, it, it is a bit jarring at first you're like oh my god all these arab names there's no way to remember it all but you with practice it actually comes about and it was for me one of those moments that just stuck out when i read hugh kennedy's first book going oh my really there are so many different names but if i could remember you know the 10 georges I can remember the different Muhammads. All right. Am I ever going to talk about anything other than Islam? Yes, I am. I wanted to do the first few seasons on Islam in the Middle East because that's where my area of expertise is at. These these podcasts were also designed for my students who take my classes. Um, so... Therefore, the history of Islam class that I teach, uh, they are sometimes used as a supplement for the global Middle East class, uh, world history, etc. Um, and so they, they can be very useful for students and they're an attempt to take the kind of discussions and lectures and make them accessible to the public in some ways moving beyond the classroom. You know, I've always been frustrated that, you know, that type of education is limited to only people who can afford to come and take that class. But we are going to talk about other things other than Islam, as you can see from uh, the special episodes uh, that we do talk about kind of contemporary next season we are going to do the other islams but after that we're going to focus on the war on terror which is going to be a much more transnational global history that looks at u.s middle eastern relationships we're going to do a world history we're going to do a history of the crusades we're going to do a history of rome um, definitely interested in talking about the Roman Empire. So we've got lots of good things in store. Stick around. Finally, if the caliphate was destroyed, what happens to the caliph? Do Muslims not have a caliph anymore? That's a fantastic question. And the answer is no, they, there are no caliphs. But there are attempts throughout history to invoke the kind of authority of the caliph. The Ottoman Empire in particular uh, 
invokes the caliphs and several of the ottoman sultans will claim to be a caliph there is an attempt to create a caliphate in africa the sokoto caliphate um in particular there's the kind of revival of the caliph and even daesh tries to invoke it by calling themselves the islamic state and al-baghdadi saying he is the caliph so there's always this kind of longing for the caliphate within various aspects of islamic history mostly because the caliphate starts to become a sort of refuge right as islam becomes globalized experiences with things like islamophobia and uh, the destruction of political states right and the fragmenting of the muslim community from these kind of large land-based empires into um these kind of disparate states you start to see some language in political aspects of islam uh, about uh, the caliphate as a refuge so you will see this this language and it is very important to understand the caliphate it's actually what my dissertation happens to be on but no caliph actually exists um, in the contemporary era. All right, so back to Muhammad al-Ghazali. Now, Muhammad al-Ghazali is a fascinating figure, and he's the linchpin that kind of brings this all together. What happens is he grows up, um, he loses his parents quite early on, and he grows up under the tutelage of a Sufi. Um, and he kind of brings the orthodox theology and Sufism all kind of together and becomes the best articulator of it all. He's the person who writes it down and teaches it most publicly. And in many ways, he is a reflection of what's all the process of bringing orthodoxy into kind of the mainstream. He's a reflection of that. He studies at the court of Nizam al-Malik, so he's part of that tr network of scholarships. And then at some point, he has this kind of uh, mental breakdown, and he just kind of disappears from the world and he goes away is we don't know what happens or why it happens um, but he eventually he he comes back and he writes a series of books that are really phenomenal and they really address the kind of the main debates that were going on one of them is called the incoherence of the philosophers now a century after he dies Averroes uh, what is who in the west is known as Averroes but uh, to Muslims is Ibn Rushd actually writes the incoherence of the incoherence as a sort of refutation of Imam but in the incoherence of the, of the philosophers, he deals with the debates of the ah, of the Ahli al-Hadith and the Mutazili kind of once and for all. And he establishes the Ashari, mainstream Ashari position that had already kind of absorbed a bit of the Ahli al-Hadith position, that had brought, absorbed a bit of the Mutazili position, um, and mainly popularizes it amongst people going, this kind of intellectual philosophy tradition is not going to answer all of our questions we need to turn to a more practical religion and one of the arguments that he makes is about predestination remember that was the big debate between the mutazili and the ashari and the mutazili and the philosophic tradition had adopted uh the greek position of cause and cause and the effects right seeing god as the prime mover he starts everything but then there is a chain of creation that unfolds that is very aristotelian it kind of has some platonic elements to it because there is a sort of idea that there is a neoplatonic uh, plane of existence the, the values or the principles that exist namely adil or justice but the, in the aristotelian tradition there is you are part of a chain of transmissions but you are also a continuer of that train of transitions that means you can make something right you cause something to happen now god is the prime mover meaning he's the originator of that chain but you at some point in that link also cause something else to happen and so that god becomes the center of this vast network but 
that the network also has some agency, and that's very important uh, for uh, that that particular school of thought when it comes to predestination. So, in other words, um, if I say knock over a bottle, right? God is the force that starts it way back in the primordial, right? In the time before time, and in the space before space, he is the principle that gets it moving. But at some point, all of that leads to my parents giving birth to me, me growing up, me coming to this moment in my life, me reaching out with my hand, then knocking it over, a bottle over, right? So God has an influence there, but I am part of that chain of transmission. But when I knock over that bottle, it spills water on the, onto the laptop, and the laptop is destroyed. I am the author of that action, but so too is God. Does that make sense? Another way of looking at it is through art, right? God is the prime mover that creates creation, but you can sculpt a sculpture. Now, this becomes problematic, right, for the kind of strict monotheism of Islam who views God as the only creator, and anything that takes away from that is problematic, which is why idolatry is such a big issue in, in Islam. You cannot have idols, right, because those are created things. The created cannot create is the argument of some of the Ahali al-Hadith. So what does um, he do? What he does uh, Muhammad al-Ghazali, that is, is reconcile that position. He makes what I call the cotton ball argument. He takes a cotton ball and he lights it on fire. And he says, I have lit this cotton ball on fire. At the superficial level, it looks like there are a set of natural laws, this is the Mutazali position, that guide this principle. Fire meets cotton ball, whoosh, right? He says that is the superficial the reality is that when the cotton ball meets the fire, it only lights on fire through the will of God. That God's will is present and imminent. That is, that he's not a prime mover, but he is the force that gets me to lift my hand and put the cotton ball on the flame. This is the mediated position between the idea that there is absolutely no free will and that there is complete and total free will. God is a prime mover, but you are also, you as the created can also create. That you are guide, that the entire world is guided by a set of natural laws. God has created those natural laws and those natural laws just work. They manifest, right? There's a sort of giant natural machine, if you will. So the Ashuri position as articulated by Imam Ghazali is the middle ground. It goes, okay, the cotton ball lit on fire. That's because I put my finger on the cotton ball and touched it to the flame. But while it looks like it is acting on natural law, in reality, it is the will of God. So that's the, that's the sort of middle ground position. This is known as occasionalism. A similar philosophy develops in Christianity. This is cementing the Ashari and the Ahli al-Hadith position, taking those two, bringing a bit of the Mutazali tradition. But what it does is it eliminates philosophy the kind of high theo the high philosophy of trying to explain God. God as an abstract principle. Instead, God is an imminent reality. He also writes another book called The Revival of the Sciences. And in it, he formulates what are the main Islamic sciences. And he says they are fiqh, that is the study of law, 
Qalam, that is the study of theology, which at this time becomes, thanks to Muhammad Ghazali, the Ashari position. Sufism, which are the devotional practices. The study of the science of the Hadith, or Usul Hadith, that is the sciences of understanding whether a Hadith is strong or not, looking at those transmission. And Tafsir, that is interpreting and contextualizing the Quran. These five sciences become orthodoxy. These are the pillars of orthodoxy. This is where it comes from. From these come the legal schools, from these come the daily practices of Muslims, from these come from the activities of scholars. It is all thanks to this moment. He represents that moment. Now, we can't say Al-Ghazali popularized it all, but he is a reflection of that. He is a consolidation of a process that is ongoing. The formation of these practices, the stability of the schools built by the Seljuks, and the accessibility of this form of Islam that is really practical is what forms orthodoxy. Does that make sense? It's a, it's a complicated, I say this as if I'm standing in front of a classroom and someone can respond immediately. But does that make sense? It's a fascinating moment in Islamic history. You see this kind of trajectory, this, this clashing with the caliphate. You see the, the response to the failures of the caliphate. You see the minyas. You see the coming of the Seljuks, the establishing of the schools. And you see all of these things kind of converging in this moment to create a mainstream orthodoxy. At this point, before this, it had not existed. While the scholars had debated, and there were various positions that we're taking. Imam Ghazali represents the kind of popularizing of that moment, the meeting of practical advice with scholastic activity. Now, there is another piece to this puzzle before we kind of end the episode. In 1258, the Mongols sweep in and they destroy Baghdad. We've already discussed the history of this, but under Hulagu Khan, uh, Al-Mutasim is killed, the caliphate is over. Uh, for all intensive purposes. What emerges afterwards are a series of emirates and sultanates from the sultanates, uh, first the Timurids, and then the Timurids give way to the three great gunpowder empires, the Mughals, the Safavids, and the Ottomans. But for all intensive purposes, the uh, caliphate is gone. But what remains is the scholarship. And those scholars eventually are the ones that convert most of the Mongols to Islam. Because Islam was practical, it was imminent, it was readily accessible, they were able to, con to uh, convert a great many of them to Islam. And so the Mongol Empire actually becomes a Muslim empire. But the destruction of Baghdad has an effect right? For the first moment, the caliphate is gone. And even though the scholars and the network of scholars in kind of create the stability that ensures that Islam will survive and thrive, there is an anxiety that emerges. And that anxiety results from the fact that the Mongols don't just destroy Baghdad and the caliphate, they destroy the Bayt al-Hikmah. We talked about the Bayt al-Hikmah when we discussed Harun al-Rashid. The destruction of all of those texts, the translation of those texts, the works of scholarship, like for example, I mentioned Fatima al-Samar Kandi. We know about her because she's referenced in other places, but a lot of her works are no longer around, right? And that's the same for many different scholars. Their, their works just get destroyed because of the Mongols. This introduces an element of conservation. This cements that orthodoxy. And we see this in the figure of a guy named Ibn Taymiyyah. Ibn Taymiyyah is a deeply, deeply conservative scholar, and one who also happens to be partly Sufi himself, but who really wants to 
pull back the reins on Islam, to bring things down to the most basic level, what one could argue fundamentalism, right? He wants to return to the fundamentals of Islam because, oh shit, the Mongols had wiped out Baghdad. He was born in that moment. The anxiety, think about it. How would an American respond if DC was wiped out? Right? I mean, we saw what happened. I mean, I hate to make this analogy, right? But what happened after 9-11, right? This moment of being attacked on your soul, it produces a certain anxiety, right? To this day, I mean, just recently, to shamelessly get political, a Congress reapproved the FISA warrants, right? The, the law that allows the executive branch to really um, spy indeterminate, you know, indiscriminately against American citizens, right? That is a result post 9-11 world, right? The USA Patriot Act. Even though we have now, we take for granted this thing called the Department of Homeland Security, right? But the Department of Homeland Security is the newest of the freaking departments. It came out of that post 9-11 moment. So we can see how that anxiety really produces a certain type of climate, right? Of, of needing to preserve, of security, etc. Well, the same, a similar thing happens when the Mongols wipe out Baghdad. There is this need to preserve. All of a sudden, they're like, oh my God, all of these books are destroyed. We need to conserve what we can. So there's this massive attempt at really trying to gather scholars together, bring about their works, and keep them safe. And under, under Ibn Taymiyyah, this meant a return to the civil simple Puritan vision of Islam, an Islam that didn't always exist in history. I mean, if you listen to my first season, you listen first couple, you see that Islam is actually very dynamic, that it is a sort of response to the imperial climate, that is a coalition movement of Muslims, Jews, and Christians, all followers of Muhammad who were rejecting the kind of imperial divisions that divided them up. Right, And yet he envisions something else. Ibn Taymiyyah sees that moment, that early Islamic moment, the early movement of Muhammad as the perfect moment, as the moment in which the community was most put together, was at its strongest, it's at its just, and it was because they lived a simple faith, away from all of these weird foreign inventions known as philosophy. Philosophy, what is that thing? It is a Greek thing. It is invaded. For the, it came from the Greeks. We don't need that. Everything else is all bidda, that is innovation. And instead, we must return to this pure moment. The pure ancestors known as the Salaf. This is where Salafism comes from. Salafism is this conservative strain of Islamic thought and Islamic orthodoxy that defines orthodoxy in the most narrowest of ways. It tends to be associated quite strongly with the Hanbali school of thought, which is the most conservative of the uh, four madhabs, Sunni madhabs, I should mention. But it is the most conservative sort of movement, and it is a response to the Mongol invasion. It is exhorting the people to rise up and fight against the Mongols. And you can only do so by creating a just society. And that just society lives simply, lives purely, and returns to the fundamentals of faith. It does not get lost in these traditional philosophy, does not get lost in the kind of high theological debates, but simply practices the simplistic sharia, the simplistic guidance from fiqh.
He acknowledges the traditions of fiqh, qalam, sufism, hadith, and tafsir under al-Ghazali, but he defines it even more narrowly, meaning that there were certain practices that he was uncomfortable with. He did not like the idea of Sufi khankas, right? These kind of monastic orders. He did not like the idea that Sufi uh, scholars ended up becoming saints or walis, right? There was a lot of these kind of popular aspects of Islam that were existing at the local level. He said, no, we got to eliminate all of that because these are innovations, interpolations. These are all divisive. They, they divide us and separate us and they make diversity is kind of breaking us apart. We need to create kind of monolithic Islam, a simple monolithic Islam in order to counteract the influence of monotheism. Now, Salafism doesn't take off particularly well. Most of the scholars reject him. He even ends up in jail in Damascus at some point. Even though later on he becomes known as Ashikh, the most important scholar for uh, the conservative kind of thread and branch and, and root of Islam, if you will, the kind of conservative strain that emerges that eventually gives birth to the Deobandi movement in South Asia, the Wahhabi movement in Saudi Arabia, really venerate Ibn Taymiyyah and other other sheikhs as well that come along the way, Ibn Khayyim and whatnot. But Ibn Taymiyyah in particular, at his time, he's not particularly popular. And orthodoxy remains within the kind of tradition articulated by Imam Ghazali. The two of these, however, will come into contact with con the contemporary moment. After the Mongols invaded and after the establishment of the gunpowder empires, the scholarly tradition becomes the key to which these new empires articulate authority. The Ottoman Empire establishes their empire and immediately the ulemas are given official imperial roles. No longer are they autonomous schools sponsored by the government, but they are actually officials of the government. They have positions like a grand mufti, which is the lead legal scholar in the tradition. In the Safavids, those the imamate that was kind of formed in Shia orthodoxy is absorbed and reinterpreted to explain and justify the authority of Shah Ismail in 1501 who creates the Safavid order. And he brings in Shia scholars to convert the majority of the region. Now remember, Iran, the Iranian plateau at this point is predominantly Sunni. He brings in Shia scholars to help convert people to uh, Shia Islam, and he does so predominantly to, through the uh, Tazia plays and through the uh, commemoration of uh, uh, the battle of Karbala, which becomes a sort of, takes on a sort of nationalistic component, a very strong identity, um, and through the influence of, of the Ayatollahs, who become the interpreters of the imamate while Sufi Islam becomes the popularized expression at the local level in the Mughal Empire and in the Ottoman Empire. The average person would seek out these scholars to, to ask for jurisprudence on various things like how to follow dietary practices, but also how to develop that internal consciousness, and they would gather in small circles and recite zikr, the names of God. This system that was developed under Nizam al-Mulk, that was then articulated, that, that formed under Muhammad ibn uh, Muhammad al-Ghazali, then becomes absorbed into the kind of imperial fabric and forms the contemporary moment. To this very day, this kind of system of scholarship 
um, this scholarly Islam, as you will, is one of the most dominant forces. In Shiism, you have the Ayatollahs. In Sunni Islam, you have the ulema, who are also more often, many of them are Sufi. So you have all of that, right? All of that in the contemporary moment. And eventually overthrown by a different brand of Islam, and that is the brand of Ibn Taymiyyah, that conservative strain that goes, we need to peel back all these other aspects, reject the kind of foreign intervention, and go back to a fundamental, pure Islam. That becomes popularized vis-a-vis Saudi Arabia, who takes on the character of Muhammad um, uh, Ibn Wahhab. We'll actually be talking about that brand of Islam in our next season when we talk about other Islams. We'll talk about Islam in Africa. We'll be talking about Islam in Southeast Asia, in South Asia, Al-Andalus. We'll talk about these kind of different expressions of Islam that we didn't talk about in the intellectual world. We'll talk about the kind of stuff that gets forgotten and, and left out. And then we'll talk about specifically Wahhabism and how that brand of Islam started to challenge the scholarly tradition in the modern era. But up until the modern era, the, the establishment of the orthodoxy becomes the main fabric of intellectual Islam, the theological brand of Islam that spreads throughout the region and helps to create some element of stability within the faith while people are divided up by political uh, and imperial divisions. All right, we are going to end the last episode of our seasons there, and I'm going to conclude with a couple of books that I think you will all enjoy. The first and foremost of them is uh, Tillman Nagel's. I already gave this recommendation, but I'm going to recommend it again in case you missed out, because it it really is one of um, the best books on this. Um, And this is uh, Tillman Nagel's The History of Islamic Theology. Really good book. It's a bit uh, weird in some of the syntax it uses. It's actually translated from German into English, so bear that in mind. The next one is Rumi Ahmad's Narratives of Islamic Legal Theory. Really awesome book. He's a professor of Islamic studies up at uh, British Columbia, University of British Columbia, which, which is actually a great place for a lot of the new stuff that's doing. Aisha Chowdhury's work and Rumi Ahmad's work. Definitely pay attention to them. He actually wrote Uh, Another book on Sharia in the contemporary moment, I think it's called Hacking Sharia. It's really good. But his Narratives of Islamic Legal Theory, fantastic. And then finally, one of my favorite books is uh, Omid Safi's book, The Politics of Knowledge in Pre-Modern Islam, Negotiating Ideology and Religious Inquiry. Um, It's a fantastic book, um, one of my go-tos, informs a lot of my dissertation as well. These three books are the best. I'm going to end that there. Thank you for all to all the wonderful listeners who have tuned in regularly. I can, I'm very happy to report that we this season broke last season's records. Not only did you all listen, but you listened regularly. Um, when I checked last week, we hit 15,000 downloads. Um, I never thought in my that I'd, we'd, I'd get 15,000 downloads. I was like, this is a little dorky, nerdy history podcast. At most, I'll get maybe 100 people listening. Some of my friends, some students, you know, who I've 
horribly coerced into listening you know people who are like okay i can stand to listen to his you know soothing tones for an hour 30 minutes to an hour um but i never imagined that we'd be hitting fifteen thousand and growing exponentially month after month uh history podcasts generally you know it's just they're kind of niche but here we are talking about islamic theology and intellectual traditions and you guys are you guys and gals are actually listening so thank you for that uh, thank you for making this podcast successful to all the people that have submitted questions that have used the hashtag head on history that have contacted and reached out to me i've heard you i thank you for your feedback uh next season we'll be doing a nerd of the po- nerd of the week where i will be shouting out all of you uh giving you guys a, a shout out for all, and thanking you for for your support to the people who left um, actual reviews you guys are awesome if you haven't left a review here's your reminder please go onto itunes and leave a, a review uh, that means a lot it helps to increase the traffic to the podcast and also it, it's something that i take on board anyways i'm gonna end there thank you for a fantastic season two i will see you in a few weeks for season three thank you very much and remember stay smart you beautiful history nerds mm-hmm.